Hello, and welcome to Bridgeford Trust Company's Delivering Direction and Control podcast series. Our podcast series is designed to educate, challenge, and inspire listeners while keeping you updated on developments regarding modern trust law and powerful planning opportunities available, all in an effort to deliver direction and control to clients and their advisors. In this episode, we sit down with guest William Blum, partner and international tax and business lawyer at Solomon Blum Hyman, for a discussion on his experience and expertise on the Virgin Islands as a tax haven and its asset protection capabilities, as well as the impact of CRS and FACTA. William also speaks on the influx of international families coming to America and how it has impacted his practice. So we are happy uh, to be here on yet another episode of uh, Bridgeford's uh, podcast series uh, today with uh, William Blum, Bill Blum, uh, an attorney in New York City who I have had the chance to meet over the last year and a half. Uh, he works with a, a great firm uh, that focuses pretty, pretty specifically on estate planning, international estate planning and taxation called Solomon Blum and Hyman. And uh, during our initial uh, meeting and conversations, I became particularly intrigued by by Bill's uh, really unusual practice and his his phenomenal experience uh, outside of the United States, which makes him a, a pretty powerful advisor to those wanting to come to the United States and people in the United States. And as I review your your bio, Bill, something that jumps out at me is that you're licensed to practice in uh, New York, Colorado, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. And of course, the U.S. Virgin Islands, Guam, and the Republic of Marshall Islands. So, does that mean you took all those bar exams in all those states? I mean, how how did you do that in the last twenty years? Of your life? It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a, a combination of uh, of different bar exams. My first one was Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, I then moved to the Virgin Islands and was required to take that bar exam, which is actually another different story because. There have been some changes in the Virgin Islands bar rules over the year, which years, which I think I've had some opportunity to participate in. Um, and um, then, as part of my practice back in the 1980s, uh, started being active with respect to other territories as well, and that's what got me to Guam and uh, the Marshall Islands. Uh, uh, is I, I took actually the first bar exam they ever uh, administered <laughs> out in the Marshall Islands. I haven't really used it all that much, but it's an interesting jurisdiction that does a lot of work in the. Uh, uh, the, the maritime area. There's a lot yeah. of, yeah. Well, um, I'd love to ask you about it. I, I, I had to just chuckle because I, I only made it to New Jersey and Pennsylvania and, I, I, and that was it for me. I couldn't imagine going through that process as many times as it looks like you have. Right. Well, but New York, at least I got to wave in. So a couple of them I did. So that Perfect. Was well, clearly the fact that you're licensed across multiple jurisdictions indicates your expertise as not only a, a tax and business lawyer, but uh, also your international taxation experience. And so we're thrilled to have you here. I, I you very graciously accepted the invitation. And, and, I, and I would love, if, if you don't mind, is to, is to focus really right, right away here on your, on your experience in the Virgin Islands. I, you know, I was really struck, as I mentioned, when we began <clears throat> during our first conversation in terms of your, of, of your expertise. I frankly, you know, having been a lawyer myself and worked with folks around the country, I've never met anybody with this kind of specific experience coming out of the Virgin Islands. So, so can you give us a history of how, how that happened? Sure. Um, I, after becoming admitted in Pennsylvania, I had the opportunity to uh, move to the Virgin Islands and practice law there. And my, my first uh, job there was for the government of the Virgin Islands as the uh, council, I think first one they ever had for the then Commerce Department, which included at the time 
not only tourism, but also uh, the Economic Development Commission. It was called a different name back then. But that entity uh, was and still is um, the main entity that um, that administers and grants tax exemptions to companies that uh, set up shop in the Virgin Islands and do physical work there and hire Virgin Islanders. And that program existed um, when I moved to the Virgin Islands back in the late 1970s. But as counsel to the Commerce Department, there seemed to me to be an opportunity to kind of expand those tax exemptions because, as I can explain in a minute, the Virgin Islands has a very unusual tax system. Um, and uh, therefore is is in a position to provide tax benefits, not only to foreign persons, but even to U.S. persons. And that Economic Development Commission program I mentioned um, is mainly used by U.S. persons who, who, as I said, moved down there and set up a business that works locally. But the expansion that we were interested in pursuing was to compete with other offshore jurisdictions, such as at the time, and I guess still, places like the BBI and the Bahamas and uh, mm -hmm. um, some of the other jurisdictions that basically have relatively inexpensive tax-free entities. So after a couple of years at the uh, Department of Commerce there, I was invited to be counsel to the governor of the Virgin Islands at the time, Juan Luis. And this was in the early 1980s. And there was a lot of talk then about tax reform generally. Of course, it was before the 1986 Tax Reform Act. Um, but the Virgin Islands, as I said, was in a very unique position because of its, uh, uh, the way the tax laws apply. And um, in order to explain that, I probably should just go into a little bit um, the Virgin Islands political status. Um, it, it is what's called an unincorporated territory of the United States. It's somewhat similar to Puerto Rico. Guam has a very similar status, which means that um, the laws applicable in the United States apply in the Virgin Islands, as does the Constitution, but only to the extent that Congress says they apply. Okay. And with respect to the Constitution, it's pretty much everything. And with respect to most federal laws, it's almost everything. But the one major exception is the tax law. And while the Internal Revenue Code applies in the U.S. Virgin Islands, it applies as what we call a mirror system. Um, which means that it applies as a local taxing statute. So with respect to Virgin Islands incorporated entities, as well as residents who are U.S. citizens, but who are what's called bona fide residents of the Virgin Islands, the tax payments of those taxpayers go directly to the Virgin Islands Treasury and not okay. to the IRS. No, I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah. But, and, and along with that is Section 934 of the Internal Revenue Code and some related sections which authorized the Virgin Islands to create these tax exemptions. Uh, as I indicated before, we have the EDC one that's been around for a very long time, but back in the mid 1980s, and as part of the Tax Reform Act of 1986, which I assisted the governor with, um, we uh, enacted the Virgin Islands exempt company law, um, which uh, is designed uh, only for non-US owners, um, that is, citizens of countries other than the United States. And you don't have to do anything in the Virgin Islands in order to, to uh, uh, no physical activity in the Virgin Islands in order to enjoy that program. And U.S. Okay. Virgin Islands exempt companies are tax-free. So there's no requirement, I know in some jurisdictions like maybe in Nevis or others, you have to have property or, or a passport or something like that. You're saying that that's not that there's no requirement in that respect. No, the only thing you have to do is establish the entity and have a local resident agent. Um, and then there are some restrictions in terms of uh, it, generally you do not use an exempt company uh, for um, 
U.S. source income. Um, well, you can, but there's no exemption for, for oh. that. For, for okay. that. So if you're if you're outside the U.S. sphere, it you know it's completely tax free. Um, so let's let me ask you a question about that. And I, I I know that people get anxious when you use the word when I use the word haven in any capacity. But um, you, you it's been referred to in some of the some of what I've read that you've written. Which by the way, I, I've read a lot of the what you've published and you've very prolific writer, but talk to me why, define tax haven in the context of, of what you're telling me about um, the, the Virgin Islands. How, how, how does that how does that play out practically? Sure. You're probably referring to an early article I wrote about uh, the the tax haven under the U.S. flag, the U.S. Virgin Islands, um, yep. which was, I Good. think, from the 1980s. Um, yeah. Good article. Yeah, thank you. Um, so that, that, that article um, described uh, the early days of the exempt company. Um, and it, Basically, it, it, back then, there weren't that many um, foreign individuals, companies, trust companies, uh, advisors who were too interested in coming to the United States because it, the theory was, gee, well, you've got the IRS. They're a pretty good tax collecting agency. If we're going to set off, uh, set up offshore, um, we would prefer to go someplace where the IRS does not have jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. Um but I and others who were involved in, in uh, developing that statute said, well, you know, it's, it's not necessarily uh, about uh, where you can save tax and who the, who the tax collector is. It's about how you use the entity. And if you're going to use a U.S. US Virgin Islands entity, it's part of the U.S. system. Um, it, it, it provides you with certain advantages under international treaties, not tax treaties, but uh, mm-hmm. treaties of uh, 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 bilateral investment treaties and those sorts of things. And it seemed to us that there would probably be some type of a market for that. We also came up with an early uh, use of them for aircraft registration under FAA laws, which oh. which is an opportunity to uh, set up a, an aircraft owning company without having to pay tax. Um, but still be offshore. So to, to answer your question, um, the idea was to to compete with and attract foreign interest in Virgin Islands exempt companies, but to compete with the BVI and some of these other jurisdictions that had many more of them than we did. Um, but you have that sort of U.S. overlay, which which we thought was something that could could be of particular interest. Now, yeah. Well, if I could, if I could jump in at the, well, I'm sorry, I, I have a specific question. Get no, go ahead. Well, no, I, I agree, and I think that I see what you're saying in terms of maybe adding more credibility. Talk, talk to me about the asset protection capability of that jurisdiction. Um, is it? I know you indicated that the U.S. Constitution still applies. So, would a would a would domestic asset protection trust law apply in that in, in that jurisdiction? Would it, would it be considered domestic? Would it be considered offshore? How how was that how was that analyzed? Sure, um, and basically, if you've you've, come, you've, you've you've touched on what is a current hot topic um, mm-hmm. because most asset protection structures, as you know, involve trusts. Mm-hmm. Um, now. The Virgin Islands does not have a statutory trust law like South Dakota does and many of the other, not many, but, you know, a handful of other U.S. states that have tried to protect, pr- mm-hmm. tried to bring in asset protection structures. So mm-hmm. at cur- currently we just have common law, which is pretty much the same common law of trust that you find out, find anywhere else in the United States. So while we have begun to set up some uh, trust structures. Um, they're not ideal from an asset protection standpoint because they don't have all of the additional protections that states like South Dakota, Delaware, and Alaska and others have have uh, enacted into their local statutes. So 
why I say it's a hot topic is we've drafted some legislation that's actually based on South Dakota law, hmm. which um, we, we're hoping to have the Virgin Islands legislature consider uh, in, in its current session. Um, oh, excellent. Yeah. Um, and if they do, then it will be even a better asset protection jurisdiction than it is now. Um, mm-hmm. But exempt companies, you know, have, have been there all along. And to the extent you don't need a trust or the extent that you want to set up a structure that includes an entity underneath the trust, which most asset protection structures do, you can set up a South Dakota trust, um, as you know, many clients do now, and have a U.S. Virgin Islands exempt company as the asset holding company underneath, which has certain uh, advantages that we can talk about. Sure. So. Which leads me to a, a question that I, I probably should have researched before I ask it, because um, it may seem elementary, but you know, all this talk about CRS, which we'll get into a little bit later, um, can't ignore it. And it's a reality in our, and then I'll call the new, new world of international planning. Um, how was the, does, did the Virgin Islands sign off on CRS or did they not? I guess it's, it's, it's I don't know the answer to that question. It's, it's a very good question. Um, and it, it kind of leads to one of the reasons that we've had Uh, a significant increase in interest in uh, U.S. Virgin Islands exempt companies in the last couple of years. Um, The Virgin Islands is uh, is not, the U.S. Virgin Islands is not a sovereign country. Um, Therefore, it has no authority to enter into treaties or treaty-like agreements like CRS, uh, except to the extent that the United States does. Now, the United States is, I think, pretty well known for being one of the only major jurisdiction, uh, if not the only, uh, in the world that has not adopted CRS. Um, And the reason is that uh, it previously enacted, uh, during the Obama administration, I believe it was 2011, the uh, FATCA legislation, which is the U.S. version of CRS. Uh, the, the issue with FATCA is that it is really designed to help the, uh, the IRS um, uh, learn information about U.S. taxpayers who might have income from offshore. And it's, it's only somewhat bilateral in that it doesn't necessarily help foreign tax collecting agencies with respect to their citizens who might have uh, investments in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and CRS is, is much more bilateral in that respect. But uh, the U.S. Uh, has not entered into CRS, which means the Virgin Islands has not entered in. So it just doesn't apply uh, in either place. Interesting. Um, Interesting. Which brings you to the next question, which is, well, what about FATCA? And, uh, and this is where Virgin Islands practice has been is always interesting, <laughs> at least to, to, uh, to, to people like me. Um, it, it, you have to check everything. Does, does a particular federal statute apply or not? And FATCA actually does not apply in the Virgin Islands. Um, uh-huh. So it puts the Virgin Islands in a very unique position in that regard. Um, uh, the U.S. Virgin Islands and I guess other, other U.S. territories probably the only jurisdictions that neither of those pieces of legislation apply to. So we're saying then that there's no reporting requirement at all? Well, not under FATCA. Um, There's generally there's similar reporting requirements for U.S. persons uh, under the U.S. Virgin Islands tax system. But uh, Virgin Islands financial institutions are not subject to FATCA. Um, And therefore, the the reporting is minimal. And certainly, as as we all know, uh, U.S. companies generally, although uh, Congress seems to be maybe making a move to change this someday, 
um, you don't you don't re- you don't have to reveal publicly. Uh, you do it, I guess, to the IRS, but you don't have to say who the owners of U.S. companies are. So that's also true of the U.S. Virgin Islands. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, this, this is fascinating. Yeah. Um, well, I guess the question, you know, and, and again, congratulations on on your great work. I mean, clearly there's a lot of trail trailblazing work you've done over the years with the Virgin Islands, and I, I guess part of some of the interest I had in understanding the impact on um, your practice uh, relative to CRS and, and sort of the big push to come to the United States, you've kind of addressed. It sounds like, um, although there seems to be a heightened interest because, as again, we're using the word nobody likes to use, but people are looking to the U.S. as a tax haven and, and a privacy haven these days. Um, but I don't, it sounds like it hasn't or wouldn't have much of an impact on the Virgin Islands status as a tax haven because of the reasons you've discussed. Um, well, uh, the, uh, the Virgin Islands, if, if we want to call it a tax haven, and, and you're right, people don't like to use that term that much anymore. Um, the exempt company doesn't pay tax. So I, if that makes the Virgin Islands a tax haven, then fine. Um, but you can go to m- many of these other jurisdictions and have the same advantage. Um, but from a privacy perspective, um, the BVI is a, probably a good example. I mean, they've adopted CRS. Um, as have, have many other offshore locations, and they've gone um, fairly far in requiring a certain amount of activity within the jurisdiction in order to take advantage. Um, and they also have registers uh, for their corporations of shareholders and directors. And there's issues in that jurisdiction as to what degree those shareholder registers in particular are public, and I think they mostly are not. but. Um, but there is CRS type reporting, uh, and we don't have the same parallel in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Now, your bank is going to obviously going to want to know uh, who mm-hmm. the ultimate beneficial owner is of any structure you might you might form. But the local tax authorities um, don't ask for it and aren't required to, and really the IRS doesn't either. Um, it's not complete anonymity if there's fraud involved and there's a legal proceeding. Um, you know, there would be a requirement of, say, a resident agent to respond to a subpoena, but it, it, that sort of thing hasn't really happened. So. Mm-hmm. No, as I said, it's, it's fascinating, and almost it's almost a gray area uh, in terms of how uh, how the Virgin Islands exists in the in the current structure, which seems to be changing by the by the week in terms of developments in the in international law. Yeah, it is. So. Well, something I, I noticed, and if we could touch on briefly, is um, you know you're licensed to practice in the Republic of Marshall Islands, okay. right? So, talk to me about that a little bit. I have no knowledge of that, and, and, and are there advantages to, to being in that jurisdiction? Um, to some degree, there are. Um, I, I mean, back uh, years ago, I mean, people were looking for more obscure locations, and it certainly probably fits into that category. Um, but these days, that's not important because of CRS mainly. It doesn't really matter which country you're in. If it's adopted CRS, then you're going to have the same issues anywhere. Um, but it's uh, a solid, you know, uh, Western-style uh, uh, jurisdiction, which uh, law of which is based partly on U.S. law and partly on New Zealand law. Um, it is a, a former trust territory, the Pacific Islands. It was one of the territories that the U.S. Uh, basically had control over after World War II. 
uh, and later got its independence, um, uh, but is still protected by the United States for defense purposes. It even has a zip code, which is a little unusual for a foreign country. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and so it has sort of a standard uh, offshore uh, tax-free type of uh, a company you can form, and some people do. So it's, it can be useful for that. Um, with a familiar familiar statutory scheme, uh, but is also particularly well known for um, for ship um, registrations. Um, the company that uh, uh, contracted with the government of the Marshall Islands uh, is one of the largest ship registrars in the world, uh, and they were looking for an alternate jurisdiction to uh, Liberia, which used to be sort of the main place you would register yeah, your official. I remember that. Yep. Uh, and they had political problems there. So um, that company, which is uh, has several titles, but one of them is Trust Company in the Marshall Islands, um, set up shop there, um, had that jurisdiction enact laws that were beneficial for ship owners, and uh, is now uh, one of the main ship registries. And one of the reasons I decided to become admitted there was so that I could write legal opinions on ship transactions, which I've done a few of. So uh. so I have to ask the question, is it is it the, the sophisticated and, and peculiar laws of these islands that draw you there or the weather? I, I'm trying to... <laughs> the impetus. I, I have to say, when I was a younger man and uh, had an opportunity to move uh, to, the, to St. Thomas right after a year or two after law school, it probably was the weather, but it was also... <laughs> Uh, the opportunity, because uh, I, I my first job was with the government down there, my first couple jobs. In, in the U.S. Virgin Islands, you've basically got all three levels of government. You've got local, state, and federal. Um, mm -hmm. Very interesting uh, place to uh, be involved in, in that type of law practice that is sort of government-related and, uh, and tax. And, and I think it was a combination of, of those things that drew me to the U.S. Virgin Islands. And once you get into the island thing, and the territory thing, you say, well, what else is out there? And that's probably what, that's probably where Guam and the Marshall Islands came from. So Sure. No, well, I, I wouldn't mind uh, you giving me a tour of all those locations at some point. So we'll uh, but but just, just to finalize that one, people say, oh, going out of the Virgin Islands, you're going to the beach. No, I'm going to work. And when I do go there, um, it's a lot of work. <laughs> hey, people say the same thing when I go to South Dakota. They're like, you're going there just to play, aren't you? Like, I'm actually going to work. <laughs> Um, probably a different kind of play. Well, if we could pivot, just because you know, have all your international experience, and and I think you have a, a unique perspective globally and and of course domestically. You know, people talk about this tsunami, if you will, or this huge wave of of international families wanting to be in the United States for a whole myriad of reasons. How's that impacted your practice? Are you are you would you confirm that? Would you say maybe not so much because of the peculiarity of of your experience? What what are you seeing? No, I'm seeing that. Um, I, I think there's always been that type of flow, uh, particularly uh, here in New York City, where my main office is, my other office is in St. Thomas. But here in New York, uh, and this is well known for, for decades, uh, foreign money has come in. Uh, a lot of it has gone into purchasing real estate, uh, which is certainly a pretty stable thing to do. Um, sometimes it's because families here are looking for a place to stay when they're here, but uh, just as often it's uh, just a matter of a a place to make an investment that uh, could bring in some some income, but is otherwise you know a safe place. So we we certainly see a have seen a rise in the number of uh, foreign families that are coming in and making that type of investment, say here in New York. But you know more generally, 
um, I think there's become a recognition, you know, post, you know, the UBS situation and, and everything that changed mm-hmm. in Switzerland for foreign mm-hmm. families to look for other places to, you know, uh, have their wealth administered. And I'm sure you've seen that out in South Dakota in terms of uh, many foreign you know, individuals um, uh, coming and families coming to set up uh, asset protection uh, in South Dakota, elsewhere in the U.S. Right. And it's interesting because South Dakota's privacy laws have been recognized lately as sort of the the, among the strongest, if not strongest in the country, which is driving, which is driven and is driving a lot of families from around the world. I, I can tell you the South Dakota regulators don't don't love that you know i think some of the articles that have appeared in the most recent one is in the guardian you know isn't very it doesn't review south dakota favorably and, and kind of give the wrong impression in my opinion it's been referred to as the little switzerland and so on and so forth and you know the major distinction i would say is that you know there's secrecy and there's and there's privacy and i think south dakota's laws are, are, are certainly fall on the on the side of, of privacy not secrecy but i can tell you as happy as we are to service these families and, and certainly Bridgeford is happy to work with families all over the world. You know, it's a fine line, you know, and, and we have to determine from a KYC perspective why, in fact, people are coming. As you well know, if they're only coming to avoid CRS, that's a big red flag for us, and we have to be careful, and and, and I think you do too as, as a practitioner, and, and we're in interesting times, and, um, you know, the words matter more now than ever, and so do intentions. How do you manage that? I mean, I would imagine, well, I know as a lawyer, you have the same potential penalties that we would have as a trust company if we only worked with somebody to create a CRS avoidance strategy. So how are you dealing with that? And how is your firm dealing with that? Well, one thing that our firm did uh, a few years ago is set up our own fiduciary services company, which Mm -hmm. at this point primarily um, does our U.S. Virgin Islands uh, incorporation work and also serves as a U.S. Virgin Islands trustee where we are setting up U.S. Virgin Islands trusts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and involved in a few other jurisdictions as well. Um, but we have a full-fledged uh, due diligence KYC process that uh, that entity, which is called Arbor International Services, uses to vet mm-hmm. our clients using, I'm sure, some of the same uh, tools that are out there to make sure that we're dealing with legitimate families and not people who are possibly involved in money laundering or have some political aspect to them. So right. we kind of subcontracted most of that out to Arbor, but we do use a great deal of care in terms of ensuring that our clients are legitimate. And yeah. you know, to answer your earlier question, they're coming here, you know, because uh, they're looking for privacy, but they're also looking for stability. Um, they may well be, may well have previously been and still are investing in U.S. stocks and bonds and, and, and equities and, and uh as well as U.S. real estate because of the safety of those investments and, and having those held in U.S. or U.S. Virgin Islands, for that matter, entities um, gives them um, that type of protection. Um, if they're avoiding taxes in foreign jurisdictions, that's not something, of course, that we encourage, but that's not what they're telling us usually. Uh, right. So. right. No, I, I agree with you. And I, I have to tell you, I, to your point about the KYC, I mean, the, the proverbial devil is in the details, so to speak. And I'm, I'm happy to say that South Dakota, within the last year, has issued some real nice guidelines for trust companies. Because one of the problems I've seen, Bill, and I don't know if you've encountered this, but you know, not all trust companies across the United States and the various top-tier trust jurisdictions have uh, a, 
a uniform approach to KYC. Some ask for more, some ask for less. Bridgeford tends to be in the in the camp of asking for more than others, which has frankly been a reason why some folks uh, have not chosen to work with Bridgeford because they they think that you know we might be asking for too much. I don't think we are, and now I know that we're firmly consistent with the regulations and guidelines promulgated by the Division of Banking in South Dakota. But you know what I worry about, and I love your thoughts, is you know if you're in the marketplace and, and say somebody in Nevada doesn't ask for as much as somebody in South Dakota, or or somebody even within South Dakota doesn't ask for much, and then um, it's, it's kind of akin to almost form shopping. But in this case, it's it's uh, not really that. It's trust company shopping, and who's going to ask for most the least amount of information? So I think across the country, there's a little bit more of a need to get some uniformity around KYC. So what, what have you seen from that perspective? Um, yeah, I, I, I've seen this similar to what you described. Um, it's some some jurisdictions is harder and some it's easier, but we're a very conservative law firm in terms of this yeah. type of practice. I think you have to be in order to survive. You don't want a reputation as a place that money launderers have an easier time. Um, right. So that's why we are you know, particularly careful with KYC. Um, but on the other hand, uh, uh, there's, there's going to be multiple levels. I mean, it's not just us that let's so let's take a typical structure perhaps which maybe let's say involves a south dakota asset protection trust and the u.s virgin islands uh, underlying uh exempt company that holds assets which opens a couple of bank accounts well the banks are going to ask for their own kyc um, that gives us some degree of protection uh, our entity that sets up the u.s virgin islands companies will be doing our kyc and uh, you guys in South Dakota will be doing yours as well. We're very comfortable with that. We have now three different entities who are doing their own KYC. Um, and uh, I think it's pretty obvious that if one of them finds a problem, they're going to be mentioning that. <laughs> so, so, right. so we have, you know, multiple levels of protection. Um, yep. A little bit yep. more. But w- w- that's not to say we're not cautious in that situation. We're cautious in all situations. But if someone's just coming out to us directly and just once, let's say, U.S. Virgin Islands exempt company, and we don't really know what they're doing with it. Well, now we're going to have to pay. We're going to have to pay, do a little bit extra due diligence to make sure that we're very comfortable with who that person is and what they're going to be doing with the company. We don't want, obviously, as and neither do you, um, our jurisdiction attacked as 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 literally a haven for Absolutely. for money launderers. And that's why I guess that term is sort of out of vogue. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I agree with you. I, I completely agree with you. And I think there's a, there's a fine line. Uh, well, as we, uh, as we sort of wind down our time together, something I really wanted to learn a little bit more about, because I'm a big believer in these types of organizations. I, I see that you were past president of, uh, of a group called Interlegal, yes. an international network of law firms with members uh, in over 40 countries. And I, I know accounting Accounting firms have done a great job in participating in these types of associations. But when, when I practiced law years ago, they were not very popular, at least where I was in, in Pennsylvania. So talk to me about that organization because I always think they're impressive if they're run correctly. So talk to me about your, your experiences there. Um, Interlegal is an international network of law firms. It's, um, I learned uh, we've been our firm has been a member for over 20 years. Um, when when we joined, uh, it was a little bit more clubby and a lot smaller, had mostly European members. Um, we've now expanded to 50 different jurisdictions, um, uh, wow. about half in Europe and half you know, around the rest of the world, including Asia and, uh, and the Americas. 
Um, and it's it's not just tax oriented. It's it's any kind of legal practice. Um, and uh, the idea behind the, the the network is to have uh, a, a familiarity and a comfort with lawyers in other jurisdictions where our clients might need services uh, or their mm-hmm. clients might need services. Um, yep. So it, it kind of puts a, a number. Most of our members are fairly small. Our firm only has about uh, 10 lawyers here in New York and another five in the Virgin Islands, uh, which is pretty small. Um, most of our members are fairly small, but it, it allows us to compete internationally with the huge mega international mm-hmm. law firms um, mm-hmm. and provide the type of service that we do uh, here domestically as well. Like we feel that we're small and we're nimble and maybe a little bit less expensive than some mm-hmm. of the big firms. Um, and we do the same quality of work by going via interlegal. We can provide services in, in so many other places through people we're very comfortable with. Well, and I love the model, quite honestly. I think that you know the large mega firm, while, while great in many respects, isn't for everyone. And I think that the, your ability to have the sophistication around the world through a connection like that is, I think, powerful. So I, I, I'm glad that I'm glad to see that exists and it's so successful. Yeah. Well, again, Bill, we really appreciate uh, you joining us, and you know, I, I think that um, I've appreciated getting to know you and your firm. We appreciate the work we've done together you know I, I think probably the, the maybe the most pressing question that our audiences may have is what which jurisdiction are you going to get licensed in next <laughs> i don't know i i, I you know I, I, as i said I'm, I'm a little older now and i'm not really going to take another bar exam but uh, <laughs> if there were one it would probably be the bvi but i don't think i'm going to do it <laughs> perfect well, well if you go there to take the exam i'll travel with you and 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 and, uh, and support you morally how's that that sound? sounds great we can have a drink together and go on the beach as well so perfect <laughs> i would that would be the reason why i would go but uh, all joking aside it's your your background is fascinating and your firm is excellent and uh, i encourage our, our listeners and audience to reach out to uh, to bill and the firm if they have any questions specifically about international issues but the virgin island conversation is is very intriguing to me so once again thank you bill very much and uh, we look forward to our future work together thank you david i've enjoyed being on the on the podcast and i'm able to do it again excellent thanks again for listening to bridgeford trust Company's delivering direction and control podcast series be sure to subscribe to our podcast to keep posted on when new episodes are added For more information, visit us online at bridgefordtrust.com.